0: Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, Episode 464. This is the weekly podcast about American flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This podcast is brought to you by SlowFlowers.com, the free nationwide online directory to florists, shops, and studios who design with American-grown flowers and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to Florist Review Magazine. I'm delighted to serve as contributing editor for Slow Flowers Journal, found in the pages of Florist Review. Read our stories at slowflowersjournal.com. Our first sponsored thank you goes to Syndicate Sales, an American manufacturer of vases and accessories for the professional florist. Look for the American flag icon to find Syndicate's USA made products and join the Syndicate Stars loyalty program at syndicatesales.com. Today's guest is Council Member Natasha Harper Madison, representing the City of Austin's District 1. She may not seem like a typical Slow Flowers podcast guest, but I know you'll find our conversation inspiring, uplifting, and a call to action. Natasha is a former floral entrepreneur and very early Slow Flowers member. I've been watching her path to public service on social media over the past few years, and I just decided to reach out and ask her to share her amazing story with us. As you will hear in the conversation that we recently recorded over Zoom, Natasha and I originally met when she joined Slow Flowers through her Austin-based wedding and event business, Eco Chic Flowers and Events, later rebranded as The Floral Engagement. Natasha was a sustainability pioneer and early adopter in the commitment to sourcing locally grown flowers and to avoiding the use of any floral foam in her designs. You'll hear us talk about her friendship with Mickey Blake. Inventor of Floral Soil, a company here in Washington that had once developed a plant-based foam alternative to single-use plastic options on the marketplace. Mickey was a past guest of the Slow Flowers podcast back in 2014 when we were huge supporters of her effort. Sadly, that project is no longer operating, but I just wanted to mention it because it's yet another thread that connected Natasha and me with a shared mission for sustainability. Inviting an elected official to be a guest on the Slow Flowers podcast isn't typical, but I am so grateful to learn from a friend of Slow Flowers, a former florist who is now on the front lines of governing and addressing social and racial justice issues in a major U.S. city. Here's a bit more about council member Natasha Harper-Madison. She represents Austin's District 1, the part of town where she was born and raised. Her upbringing endowed her with an intimate knowledge of her community's strengths and its unique struggles. The lessons she learned as a successful small business owner on the east side of Austin led her down a path toward advocacy. She served as president of the East 12th Street Merchants Association and also founded East Austin Advocates, a nonprofit dedicated to connecting underrepresented residents with the resources they need to succeed. Her community led activism sparked Councilmember Harper Madison's interest in seeking public office, a goal she achieved with her first campaign for City Council in 2018. She is the chair of the Health and Human Services Committee, and she sits on the Housing and Planning Committee, the Judicial Committee, and the Regional Affordability Committee. In between championing the interests of her constituents, Councilmember Harper-Madison is the proud wife of an Austin firefighter, the mother of four children, and a thriving breast cancer survivor. Let's jump right in and get started, and please visit DebraPrinzing.com for the episode 464 show notes, where Natasha has shared some photos and links that you'll want to see. You can also find and follow her social places. Welcome back to the Slow Flowers podcast with Deborah Prinzing. And I am so excited today to introduce a very special guest, council member... Natasha Harper-Madison of the city of Austin, Texas. Hi, Natasha. Hi, Deborah. it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh, it's so much fun that we're doing this. I really thank you for taking time to to visit with you uh, and let let our listeners hear from you. Uh, Just as a way of background, I was telling Natasha, this is one of those where is she now stories Because you uh, were a very early member of Slow Flowers, um, probably in 2013, 14, 15 in there. So uh, what are you doing as a council member in one of the largest cities in the country in Austin? Give us a snapshot of how that all, you know, I guess how that happened and what that means, what kind of role that is, because it's like a pivotal time for you to be in city leadership.
1: Yeah, my my timing was impeccable, (laughs) especially as a first-timer in politics. So, uh, oh, so to talk about the trajectory that landed me here. Well, like you said, you know, I I was trying to find anybody who could, you know, offer me some inspiration, information, education about sustainably sourced plants and flowers. And, of course, I stumbled on a hard copy of Flower Confidential. Oh, Amy Stewart's
0: book. Amy, yes.
1: And so I was reading this book and just really trying to figure out, okay, so now what do I need to do? And I found the 50 mile bouquet. And then I found a a couple other sources of inspiration. And I was like, okay, so this is a thing. And that to say, I I tried, you know, everything I could to um, appeal to the folks in the event space and the brides and the event planners to really go that extra mile and make the, you know, what was frankly a marginal additional investment. And mm-hmm. flowers that were just better for the planet. Um, but like you said, I was an early adopter, maybe too early. Um, it was one of those things where there just wasn't the appetite for it yet. Um, so, as a small business owner, that, that was not sustainable. Um,
0: what was so, okay, well, well let's just, just dive into this. Your company at the time when I met you was called Eco Chic. Is that correct? Right. Correct. Okay. And when did you, um, what years were you operating Eco Chic? So, I started Eco
1: Chic um, in 2011. Um, and then uh, in 2014, a business partner and I um, took Eco Chic and made it something new and different and interesting. So, we retooled it. Um, and there was a business we were working on where, um, well, I won't tell the idea because I haven't seen very many people doing yeah, it yet. Maybe, maybe you'll I do don't it. Back <laughs> That'll be so your we, next chapter. <laughs> we have this project, it was called the Floral Engagement. And the Floral Engagement Um, was set to launch on the 17th of September in 2014. And I was diagnosed with a late stage, fast growing breast cancer three days before.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: We really just had to shut everything down and that September of 2014. And uh, honestly, I I never looked back, you know, during the course of treatment. And, you know, like my mom says, that chemo killed that cancer, baby, but it almost killed you too. You know, it was really... It was not what i expected as a person who was just so vibrant and energetic and healthy and athletic and i just didn't expect for it to wipe me out like it did and and
0: young i mean you're i was 36 years old yeah you're you were a young mom basically um not somebody you expect to i don't know i I, maybe that's a misconception that cancer only attacks you know the elderly i know that's not true but you weren't expecting to have poor health
1: well, and the truth of the matter is it's happening more and more frequently these days. And it would, the irony, though, was at the time, um, both between you know really wanting to dive into getting people committed to you know, sourcing local flowers, plants and flowers, um, I was also on a campaign against floral foam at the mm, time, mm-hmm. which is how I met Mickey Blake mm-hmm. up in Washington and, you know, and, and, and a continuation of me watching your work and some of the others who were doing work in the space. And so, you know, I had just done this pitch competition. Um, there was a, a an incubator called a Vendee. And so my project for a Vendee was a, 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 a product that would be similar to floral foam, but that would be biodegradable and non-carcinogenic.
0: And then I got cancer. It was just so, you know, bizarre and ironic. And I mean, you just have to laugh because otherwise you'd be crying. I mean, it's just absurd. I I laughed. It was funny. It was hilarious. Uh, But
1: that to say, you know, post-treatment, I really just found myself with the opportunity to face your mortality at 36, to talk to your kids about the possibility of you passing. um, It really just sort of shifts everything, doesn't it? And I just told myself I I needed to do something that was fulfilling, that brought me joy. You know, at the time I was, you know, because I was struggling so hard and I was a solopreneur, I was both making bouquets and washing buckets and, you know, like doing all the procurement and it's, it's hard work. Right. And so I, I just, I was looking for something that really brought me happiness and joy and required less from me physically, and so I started volunteering for local organizations. So Austin, we're we're getting close to a million and a half people. Um, okay, we're the capital city of Texas, and we're the eleventh largest city in the nation. And so there was just you know there were a lot of organizations that were really trying to help you know advance us beyond our history. You know, a lot of folks only think of Austin as this. Progressive bastion, you know, without acknowledging that we were in fact a slave trading town on the banks of the Colorado River. You know, our history is much like a lot of places in the nation. And so I started doing some anti racist work and community advocacy work, and it was definitely where I was supposed to be. And wow. the more I did it, the more I, you know, helped people and talked to people, you know, I was you know, drawn to engage with municipal leadership, you know, to really shift policy in a way that made people's lives easier. You know, folks really in the trenches, you know, suffering the manifestations of generational poverty. Um, It's like you can fix one thing, but there's 19 other things, right? You need a more comprehensive policy to approach transcendence of cyclical poverty. And so the more I engage there, the more I learned about displacement and gentrification and land use. And it was like every everything that I tried to do to help somebody led me down a path of recognition of where the system is failing. It's not this person. It's not this one organization. It's systemic. And so in December of 2017, I said, I'm running for office. And wow. You-
0: yeah. <laughs> and and let me put a pin in that for a second. Had your how long was your battle with cancer and how, you know, how much time had passed before you felt strong enough to do something like that?
1: Um, so I started chemo pretty quick. Um, and so that was in October of twenty fourteen. Um, so I had my mastectomy procedure in March. My my surgery date was actually a command, March 4th.
0: And oh, so, beautiful.
1: Absolutely. That was like,
0: if you're looking for those signs and that's pretty obvious.
1: <laughs> oh, I found it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the support that my, I mean, I, I knew I had a, a great support system. I knew my community was, you know, fortified and loving, but I just, you can't know until you find yourself in that sort of position and watch people just really show up to support you. But so that surgery was March 2015. Um then I went through radiation for several months, which um, you know, I, I think that next year and a half was just about recovery. Yeah. You know, it it really took me down. You know, and so like my visit to Mickey Blake in Washington State, my husband and I, we rented a minivan, put an air mattress in the back of it, and rented a wheelchair, you know, and so we drove up the coast from uh, Southern California, we drove up the coast up to Washington. I
0: remember that. We we you didn't, remember. Well, we didn't connect, but I think we talked on the phone when you were there. It was yeah, it was um, in the fall of 2015. Is that right? It was, wow! Absolutely. Oh my it was gosh! My birthday
1: trip. <laughs> <laughs> my birthday's in September. Wow. It was goodness yeah, gracious. And so give that about you know six more months, and so this spring of 2016 is when I was really hitting the ground running. You know, what I did first was I just, I got in my little dusty Prius and I just started driving around to the housing projects where I lived and uh, my youth. So, you know, my formative experience is pretty deeply entrenched in poverty. So that obviously spoke to me. And so I just start driving around and asking people what they needed. And wow. then we were, we were off from there.
0: Um, I did read that on your bio on your official, um, you know, uh, City of Austin bio page that um, you represent the district that you were raised in and that you've spent your formative years in. So how rare is that, you know, to really have such a deep connection to place? Um, I mean, who understands the issues more than someone who came up through that that community? That's I really think powerful. It's relatively rare. And
1: then, to be honest with you, you know, Austin was Texas in general, but Austin, you know, we're the capital city and we're a major metropolitan city. We were one of the last major metropolitan cities in the nation to adopt a, a council representation system. What we had was the at-large system. And you know, for years, people complained about the at-large system. So you know, for those who don't know, it basically means you can live nowhere near the district you represent, have no experience, no knowledge of the district you represent. And there was this map that came out that basically showed everybody who served on the city council lived within approximately 2.8 miles from one another in the most affluent parts of town. And so that that's not.
0: What's wrong there. with that? Yeah. When did wow. that cha- when did that change? That changed in 2014. Oh my gosh. So were you the first council member elected or no, maybe the second in district 1?
1: I was the second in district 1. Wow. Mm-hmm.
0: Wow, but how energizing for um, your constituents to say, "Hey, she represents us because she knows this neighborhood. She knows this, you know, whatever, these schools, you know, the streets, all of that, that gives me the shivers. That's amazing.
1: It was awesome. And we, I mean, we, we went to a runoff. It was a tight race. We went to a runoff. There were a lot of people in my race and, but I mean, we won the runoff handedly. It really was a a landslide for all intents and purposes, even given that, you know, my district is sort of underrepresented by voter turnout, but Mm. the ones turned out, they really showed up. And so the numbers, you know, relative to How we, how this district votes historically were really good and folks are super supportive.
0: So you took office January of 2019, is that right? That's right. Okay. And how long are your terms? Four years. Oh, wow. So you're barely into half, you know, the first half of this term. You probably had so many like a, a punch list of things you wanted to tackle, but I know you have committee assi- chair assignments and maybe some, por- your portfolio is specific on uh, what you manage for the city.
1: Oh man. So, you know, we, we, we do it all, uh, but yeah, just to sort of give a, a day in the life of. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we're, you a, know, a
0: pre COVID day
1: in the life. of. <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting. And, and, You know, like we were saying earlier about the signs, what's interesting is that the the majority of the policy that I was looking to create and advocate for is exactly the same. It's only highlighted by COVID. So Mm. in conversations around cyclical poverty, we're talking about housing insecurity, food insecurity, lack of access to quality health care, lack of access with education, Digital inclusion, you know, all our kids went to digital learning. And so then it was not an ancillary consideration that most folks, you know, that are existing in the margins don't have internet access. It's not considered a public good, you know, as much as it is an amenity. But these are all things, access to transit. These were all things I was already talking about. Wow. COVID just took a magnifying glass to all the inequity and said, oh, boy, well, look at that. So honestly, it's been, you know, it's been energizing in the way that I'm getting my colleagues and, you know, the business community and, you know, more people are following my lead on tackling these issues that historically have always been present for 200 plus years in Austin.
0: But they were convenient to ignore because they weren't everybody's district or and people people rationalize all of this stuff. Absolutely. So I cut you off. You started to talk about a day in a life um, (laughs) of your your role as a council member. Um, Let's jump back to that. I'm sorry I cut you off. No worries. You got me excited. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I guess
1: just I wear so many hats throughout the course of the day. Um, We obviously make plans. We obviously have a calendar, but the the frequency with which we just take the calendar and put it in the garbage disposal is sort of mind boggling. You know, so much happens day to day. So much happens with our constituents and in the national news that directly affects municipal news and policy that, you know, it's just a, no two days are alike. It's it's a constant series of challenges. And that's maybe what I love about it the most. It's always trying to figure out how to be Policymaker, an advocate, a teacher, a listener, a soapboxer, a collaborator, the people's champ, a punching bag. You know, it's like at any given day, I'm all those things. And I'm a mama and a daughter yep. and an aunt and a sister and a wife, you know. So uh, the days are long, but I think I'm getting exactly what I signed up for. It's so fulfilling to feel like we're making change, you know, we didn't come in with any preconceived notions or expectations, you know, about this being easy. And so,
0: and there's also like, you're in it for the long game. It sounds like you, you, you know, there's some short-term fixes you can probably affect and influence, but uh, there's other things that really need, a lot of coalition building and a lot of, you know, you educate. I mean, it's it's unfortunate, but you probably have to educate a lot of your fellow, you know, elected officials about what is um, what is right under your nose and it should be under their noses in terms of. Uh, these priorities you mentioned, like access to healthcare, access to uh, digital, you know, commu- you know, and transit and all of that. How do you slice and dice that? Like what, what is, um the, the process for getting a new law in place, does that happen just during certain times of the term or is that ongoing?
1: It's ongoing. I mean, honestly, it, you can, so what they're called are items for consideration or okay. a resolution. You can produce as many resolutions as you see fit, basically. Um, I personally have found that as often as you can make changes shift policy without producing a resolution um that's good too so it's both so it's either you know shifting change from you know the inside in that way or shifting change simply by getting with the folks who are the heads of those departments and you know introducing to them whatever the shortfall may be or whatever Mm. the new consideration may be you know the, the beauty of it is the city's living and breathing, you know, it's not static at all, it's fluid. And so things shift and change all the time, every day.
0: Wow. Wow. That's interesting. I can see how effective you're going to be that you are at that because you uh, are, (laughs) you're passionate, persuasive, you bring people along. I mean, these are the same things that you did when you were producing weddings and events. Uh, These are just more (laughs) like, important in a way, not to, not to dismiss the wedding industry, but I mean, this is life and death for your constituents. And there's an urgency, um, that you must have felt from day one that now, now other people are finally waking up and saying, oh yeah, Natasha called this out, you know, 18 months ago.
1: Well, so, you know, to bring it back down to plants and flowers, like (laughs) you were saying earlier, (laughs) like you were saying earlier, I've, I'm in it for the long haul. This is a marathon for me, not a sprint. I recognize that I'm planting heirloom seeds whose fruit I will never taste, you wow. know.
0: Wow. And
1: I'm well aware of that. Uh so but it doesn't mean you don't plant the seed, <laughs> you know. And so it this this gig is not for folks who need instant gratification. This gig is for folks who are, you know, one of the things my daughter asked me that um really solidified my decision to run. She said, mama, what's Austin going to look like in 2080? <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, I,
0: I don't know, girl. <laughs> but, <laughs> this, this girl has the horizon on, uh, I mean, she's, that's crazy. She'll be an old lady in 2080. She, Bless her heart.
1: Yeah, so she sure will be an old lady. And that to say, I I appreciate that she reminded me to think long, yeah. to think to think long. Wow. I need it.
0: Natasha, how old are your children? You have four children, right?
1: I do. So wow. my this is 10. Next up is 11. And then, so we call them our bigs and our littles. So the littles are 10 and 11, and then the bigs are 20 and 25.
0: Okay. Wow. And um, this changed their lives too. Ma, First of all, your cancer must've been really tough on your family. And then that made them maybe strong enough to be like, Oh, well, she beat cancer so she can uh, win this seat and, and help run our city. <laughs> I mean, it's a family affair, right?
1: hundred percent, you know, yeah. so their father is a civil servant as well. He's a firefighter. And so with his schedule, he's 24 on 48 off. That was going to be an adjustment um, with you know, recognizing just how much time was going to need to go into this, that was going to be an adjustment. Recognizing that I would be in the public eye and that people can be really mean, and that was going to be an adjustment, you know? And so we definitely made the decision as a family. There was no, we didn't go into this lightly. We we talked about the pros, the cons, we made a list, and we decided that at the end of the day, one, representation matters. I am the single Black council person on a 10-member council. If you include the mayor, that's 11. I'm the single Black council person uh, in the 11th largest city in the nation. Had what I lost the, my, I'm sorry, go ahead.
0: No, I cut you off. I finished Finish your thought.
1: I was going to say, had I lost my race, my opponent was Latinx. Had I lost my race, we'd be sitting here in 2020 with, you know, zero Black representation on the Austin City Council. And so that was one of the things that was just at the end of the day, we as a family said, no, representation matters. And we need little black girls to see a black woman doing work that's extraordinarily important and being in a position of executive leadership. So that was really the thing that even my baby girl was the one who was like, mama, you have to do it. Oh oh my gosh.
0: Uh, What I was going to ask you is what is the roughly the, percentage of black residents uh, in the city in terms of like, talk about representation, is it 20% or something like that
1: or? Um, It was 20% in
0: 1979.
1: In 2020, it is 7.8%. Austin is one of the only major metropolitan cities with a declining black population. Um,
0: Seattle would be another one. Right,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Seattle, and a lot of it has. I mean, isn't it a lot of it because of housing costs and gentrification and, um, you know, lack of access to, absolutely transportation so or jobs.
1: Has, super. Austin's history includes redlining to the tune of state mandated segregation. With a document, it was called the 1928 Master Plan. In the 1928 Master Plan, it Uh, basically determined that all residents of African ancestry needed to live in one part of town. The part of town that we were relegated to was called the Six Square, because it's six square miles that constitute the historic African American Heritage District. And so there were freedmen towns all over the city. There were people who had amassed wealth, who had built businesses, Um, who had to shutter their doors and leave their homes. If you wanted to receive city services, paved roads, running water, electricity, you had to live in the Negro District, which is what it was called. And so the Negro District became, you know, Black people did what Black people do. We're resilient and we make a way out of no way. We historically always have. And so the Negro District had thriving black businesses. Um, I think per capita, we have some crazy, you know, number of uh, cemeteries and churches. There's a church on every corner in this. Um, So we had thriving businesses. We had, you know, uh, people were able to worship. We had schools, people were able to be educated. And just as a community, we had created this, you know, It was like, we took this place that we were relegated to, but then we made it ours, you know, and then sure enough, you know, as, uh, prospectors do, they recognized in the eighties that this was going to be extraordinarily valuable land one day, you know, it's less than a mile away from downtown. You know, if I stand in my front yard, I can see the downtown skyline. And so they started making
0: property then. Hot
1: property. But, you know, do you think these people invested in, you know, taking a, a community that was really starting to feel the pressure of a 100 years of disinvestment, intentional disinvestment, you know, and so failing infrastructure and people having difficulty maintaining taxes and some of the other, you know, things that come along with right, the- yeah. And disinvested in. And so do you think they came in and repaired that and offered people the opportunity to thrive and be economically independent? No, they bought property and bought more and bought more and bought more and rented it out, substandard conditions, barely habitable for two and a half decades until it was time to cash in. And then cash in time came and these little 800 square foot pier and beam bungalows, got replaced with 3,700 square foot McMansions. And, you know, the, there was a, an ordinance see, by way of um, something like a, an item for consideration. We passed legislation around um, McMansions. We have a rule about it now. But that to say, there was no rule for a long time. There was nobody advocating for communities of color and people just existing in poverty because, you know, despite popular belief, not all poor people are brown. And so, yeah, so, but it's, it's, it's not unique. Austin's not unique and this part of town is not unique. It's happened all over, you know, town and it's basically anything proximate to downtown got, I mean, the the prices hiked, the taxes hiked and people can't afford to live in the city anymore. So, you know, the Austin Metro area has more than 7.8%, but Austin proper has 7.8% percent because people just moved out, you know, where it was more affordable.
0: So that six block or six square area, is that your district?
1: That is a part of my district. Wow. Um, my district is actually um, one of the largest. I have 46 square miles that I represent. 46 square miles and 80,000 plus people.
0: Wow. Oh my gosh. I am just so in awe of this, this holy task that you're doing. Like this is, this is so, such hard work. And, um, I just, I'm thank you for your service. I don't even live in Austin and Texas, but I want to support you because you're just being present is, is changing conversations and yeah. So how, how do your constituents get in touch with you? I mean, now you can't have a open out visiting hours in your office. Everything is sort of long distance virtual, um, Right, makes it a little bit more challenging to communicate with people. I bet. Well, so people still reach out a lot, and I, I
1: make a specific effort to attend neighborhood association meetings. So a lot of my neighborhoods in in my district are super active, um, and for no other reason, they are truly diverse communities. Um, they're you know mixed race, mixed income. There's education of varying levels. You know, we have our our senior population, and then we have brand new families with brand new babies and. So, um, they are very active, which I really appreciate. And so, I get the opportunity to attend a lot of neighborhood association meetings virtually. Okay. Um, We also, our constituent services person, I mean, she's always jumping between the emails and the phone calls. And so, when and if she needs to, you know, she doesn't hesitate to pass that phone call or that um, Zoom meeting over to me. I'd like to pride ourselves in being the most responsive office at city hall for no other reason. It was just something I said going in was a point of frustration for me that feeling like there was a lack of, you know, access to my, my council person. Um, and I, I just never wanted to, to be that council person. Now, admittedly, and in hindsight, I probably owe her an apology <laughs> for being frustrated with her lack of access. It's, it's virtually impossible to do the job, to continue, I mean, because, you know, it's like, what, what's the expression about fixing the airplane while you're flying it? Right we, right. we can't be an expert at everything. So sometimes policy is introduced and in order for you to be able to be a part of the deliberative process, you have to learn about the thing. So you're, you're doing the job, you're learning the job, you're managing an office and a staff and constituents and, you know, you're being pulled in so many different directions. I realize now why it's so difficult to get access um, to your municipal leaders. But I I still try, you know, I make it a a point of priority to try really hard for folks to be able to email us, call us, and, you know, we are as responsive as humanly possible.
0: Now, with uh, all the changes that are happening in cities, especially after the death of George Floyd... At the hands of yeah. police in Minneapolis, what is happening on the ground in Austin in terms of Black Lives Matter protests or just you know anti-racist protests? I, you know, I'm sure that I've seen it on the news. I just sees, sees, feels like every city has sort of the same newsreel. But um, what are you seeing happen in your community? And and is there are there any positive glimmers of hope in terms of just shifting the conversation?
1: absolutely and you know again my timing is impeccable so uh we had uh we had a situation last year in the fall the austin police department was hit with really credible allegations of racism in its top ranks um i responded by rallying the african american community and the rest of council to support an investigation of the department's um policies procedures uh training curriculum and you know, we really wanted to find out what was um, making it possible. What was sustaining this subculture of bigotry um, amongst officers? And, and frankly, at the at the top, we're talking about an assistant chief, top rest. Um, And so it, obviously in March, the pandemic broke out and we had to pivot a little bit to really shoveling out information as fast as we could about COVID. But right. we still had this thing looming, you know, this Uh, I passed a resolution. It was resolution number 66 in December of 19. And it called for this independent investigation to be conducted and then results to come at a certain time. But, you know, obviously we, that February deadline came and went, it got pushed back. Um, And so uh, when we did receive the results of that independent investigation, I think for people of color in the city of Austin, it was no Surprise, you know. I, I, I personally have been, you know, helped and harassed by the police. The truth of the matter is, our city has a racist, white supremacist past, and it's just as bad as any other southern town. I think we pride ourselves in being so progressive with our uh. politics that we really let the racist legacy fester quietly, covertly. You know what I mean? Um, and wow. so the. Pandemic exposed a bunch of those resulting inequities around racism and race. And um, so when George Floyd died, I think it was an opportunity for Austin to be energized again. I, you know, we were sort of in, in a terrible club already. You know, we have a really, really bad track record with um, police brutality and, and frankly with um, officer-involved death. And so we, you know, were already still reeling from um, a couple folks who had been murdered in the last two years at that point, and then we were already still reeling from Sandra Bland, and you know, I think George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Philando Castillo You know, the problem is I can name names all day. Um, I, I, I really do see how communities across the world globally just said enough is enough. And here in Austin, I think there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of validation that people felt. They were already saying that this was a problem. And then, you know, the folks who don't want to acknowledge it. it and right. I think some of them are woefully ignorant, but I think some of them are willfully ignorant. You know, I think some of them just don't want to have this difficult conversation. But And so, but then they gaslight these folks who are telling them we have a problem. And so then you just, you know, at this point with real, true, global civil unrest, you can't ignore it anymore.
0: Right. right.
1: So Austin's been really taking the charge as far as Texas cities are concerned with some of the policy that we're putting into place and our activists and advocates are are working double time. You know, the folks who have been protesting at the police department, they're upwards of 50 plus days that they've been out there every single day. So, you know, there's definitely a lot of movement in the way of police reform. There's a lot of movement in the way of policy reform. I have an agenda item that's coming up at our next council meeting where we're declaring uh, racism as a public health crisis, you know, and there are several other that's pieces. That's important. Of that. I'm sorry? That's
0: important. Absolutely. It's important to just call it out like that and and I I and the leadership that you're bringing to that is just fearless. I love it.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. And for what it's worth, I'm energized by younger people. I mean, they're more engaged than ever and it's inspiring and and you know, it's it's a call to action for me to be a good example to to take this opportunity to inspire them and start to build that capacity. So in a couple of years, they knock me right out of my spot. That's what I hope for, yeah. you know? Yeah.
0: Do you have, um, a st- uh, I don't know if this is possible to ask, like do your fellow uh, con- um, council members, um, are they pretty much on, on board and look to you for like, do you have to be the, the black knowledge in the room and always bringing people up to speed or are people doing the work to come alongside you and, you know, link arms? I'd say both.
1: Right. Um, You know, there was a period of time where I felt I did feel like I was on an island all alone. Um, And I would ask my colleagues, specifically um, my white colleagues, because I do have several brown colleagues. I would specifically ask my white colleagues to join me and in solidarity, say the words racism, white supremacy, um, segregation, and because so often I was saying it and it really made me an easy target, right? Mm-hmm. Really made the gaslighters um, uh, day to be able to call me a race baiter and uh, I, an identity politician and, you know, these kinds of things. But I, I I know what's really behind that. The truth of the matter is that when you, when you have so much coming at you exclusively, you know, there were people who were attacking my appearance, who were, you know, bringing up stuff about my family. It, it really got ugly there for a minute. Um, and I, I was asking a lot uh, of my colleagues to really join me and there were some who did and some who were slower to come around. And then in, I guess it was, duh, 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 I think October, somebody, uh, at city hall called me a nigger to my face. Um, called me an uppity nigger. Is what A she called. city employee. Oh no, this was oh. a a a citizen. Oh, Um, okay. That to say though, I, when I shared that with my, um, colleagues, it definitely sort of shifted their realization of the difficulty that I faced that they just don't. Um, and then, you know, the, the issue happened with our police department and what happened there was our assistant chief was, it, it basically came to light that he had, Very liberally applied the use of the N word to describe the president, um, my predecessor, uh, his colleagues, his subordinates, you know, and that our chief knew about it, you know, and so that really blew things up too. To wreck, I mean, you couldn't ignore it. And then, you know, when all of this came to pass, I definitely got a lot of my colleagues offering support and. You know, there were a few folks who said, "I'm so sorry for you." And you know, I I just very candidly said, "You shouldn't be sorry for me. To be sorry for all of us. This is all of our problem." You know, I don't. I shouldn't be any inherently more sad or frustrated or angry than you are. Right? Oh my gosh, oh, humanity. You know. And so then I I had one of my colleagues told me something really awesome, and it really shifted my perspective. He said. I often operate in deference to you because I just don't want to mess up. And I was like, you know, I really hadn't considered that. I appreciate you offering me that perspective because he was attempting to be considerate. And so I just offered him, you know, by blessing to do your best. And if and when you do something that offends me or wasn't, you know, comfortable, I will say so. I'm not shy. But don't let that make you silent, you right, know? right? Don't let operating in deference make you
0: silent. Wow. Um, just quickly, on the police investigation, you said it was stalled because of COVID, but have you received the report from that independent investigation?
1: We did. It's Lisa Tatum um, was the independent investigator and she re- re- uh, produced an almost 60-page report that is extraordinarily damning. Um, her summary of the investigation was she said, it felt like I was, um, it felt like I was, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, an honorary. It felt like I was an honorary detective who was assigned an outdoor crime scene after it had rained heavily twice.
0: (laughs) So a lot of stuff had, uh, been hidden and like or washed away. Like she couldn't find some of the evidence that she knew had been there. Is that what she meant? Exactly.
1: exactly. And there were people, there were officers, you know, various, you know, like disciplinary forms or things that they had signed who said, I know I signed that form. Many, many records just disappeared. And uh one of the things that she pointed out in the report, which you know definitely reflects itself in how many people were willing to come forward and self-identify. Um, was that people are, you know, the rank and file are extremely afraid of retaliation and um, about their prospects for advancement in their career, which is terrible. And so now we're in the second wave, uh, which is a really thorough audit of our cadet class. What are they being taught? Who's teaching? Um, under what circumstances? How much time is being spent on the various parts of the curriculum. If we're spending more time on the weapons training module than we are the de-escalation module, that's a problem. And so the independent body that's conducting the audit, they basically said, we need more time. This is a mess. So what we did was, I mean, we already, by way of my resolution number 66, we delayed a cadet class that was supposed to happen in... um, uh, in July, or well, we considered mm. uh, delaying a cadet class that was supposed to happen in July. And by way of the their latest report that said they're nowhere near done, we definitively delayed that cadet class that was supposed to happen in July. And, you know, as we approach August, there's a cadet class that's supposed to happen in uh, late October, early November. I don't know that that will happen either, to be honest
0: with you. Because, I mean, because you don't want them to be trained in the, with outdated, uh incorrect methods when you're trying to affect training to be inclusive and balanced um, going forward
1: absolutely I mean we're on the precipice of truly transformative change in how we view public safety and law enforcement why would we keep plucking right you know, off of that rotten tree you know it's not <laughs> bad apples the whole tree has disease yeah it's-
0: don't fill that oh. conveyor belt with new cadets who are going to learn the the wrong information.
1: Exactly. Wow. Oh,
0: that is so profound. The, it is almost, it, I, I don't know how you get through the day. You are just poised and beautiful and confident. And I'm sure there's days where you just want to curl up in a fetal position and get under the desk and say, (laughs) Oh my goodness. I mean, it sounds like family is really important just to keep you sane and, and just be surrounded by people who believe in you and, and not just family, but constituents. What do you do to, (laughs) what do you do to like take a mental health break? Do you just, you said you have a new property, so you probably aren't even gardening or anything like that. Well, so it's 108 degrees every <laughs> oh, yeah. day. That would be that would be a December activity. <laughs> exactly.
1: So actually, you know, my COVID activity that I've taken up, and it's become sort of a uh, an all-consuming thing is, you know, I really for a while there, I had started to neglect my health and my wellness. I wasn't sleeping, I hmm. wasn't eating well, I wasn't drinking enough water, I was working way too many hours. And I found that, you know, COVID only increased my the amount of hours that I was contributing to the workday. And and decrease the amount that I was, you know, contributing to my own, you know, evolution as a human, you know, to really just uh, enriching my own life. And so I've started working out, which I mostly do indoors because it's hot. <laughs> and I started really exploring healthy foods and, and preparing healthy recipes. And I'm dedicating more time to reading and a lot more time to my, my kiddos. And um, my husband actually, as a firefighter, had to move out of the home in March. Um, so I haven't had a hug or a kiss from my husband since March 16th, you know? And so, oh,
0: because he is that he's like so exposed and, uh, and he's constantly on at the risk, front lines.
1: Oh. I'm constantly at risk, right? So I'm, I'm one of those high risk people. I have uh, lupus, funny story, finding my lupus on a Monday and then finding my cancer on a Friday is my funny story. Had I not found the lupus, I would not have found the cancer. Um, so oh I'm not mad at my lupus, <laughs> yeah. but, I, but you're, I,
0: you're definitely in a he- high risk health category is what absolutely. you're saying. Wow.
1: Right. Wow.
0: So your kids are with you and your husband has to be in firefighter land, you know, sequestered in an RV in the driveway. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Do you get to wave at each other? <laughs> and
1: we, and we, and that's what I was actually, that's why I brought that up because oh. we take daily walks. Well, when he's off shift, we take daily walks. We just, he walks on one side of the street and we walk on the other and I mean, oh. we spend a lot of time just. Hanging out on the porch six foot apart or in the yard or, you know, I, I think even though we're not physically together, I think we're spending more time together than we have in our, you know, 17 years together. It's it's been pretty interesting to watch some oh, of it. Yeah.
0: Wow, Natasha. That's amazing. Oh my dear, I am so grateful for you to dedicate this chunk of time to tell your story. And um why I find it so inspiring is I was I always thought you had the coolest business. Eco Chic was like this, as I said, a pioneer in trying to do sustainable weddings and events. And back in the day, it wasn't that long ago, but it feels it must feel like a lifetime ago to you. But to, you use the word evolution as a human being, and I I think that your story is going to inspire a lot of others. We have one slow flowers member who's a flower farmer in Maine, Stacy Brenner, who's running for state representative. And I, I, yeah, I'm gonna have to connect you guys by email. and um, she's, um, I don't know. I, I mean, I think they, I don't even know if they've had their primary yet, but I think it, it it was sort of the same thing, like a capable woman looking at problems and saying, if not, if not me, who, you know, like uh, I have this skill set to organize to for you. You knew you had the skill set to address so many things that were being ignored. And you put your, you know, that's the sacrifice to do that. You know,
1: it, it's a sacrifice, sure,
0: but it,
1: I, sacrifice is not synonymous with suffering, is what I would want to point out. It's right. a sacrifice, but it is the I'm in the most fulfilling sort of period of my life, my season. My grandmother say, "Oh, honey, it's your season." <laughs> it's, <laughs> This is my political season. And, you know, who knows what comes next? But right. right now, this is the time where I'm supposed to be exactly where I am. And uh, who knows? I might be jumping back into flowers and giving you a call in about eight years. So You uh, do
0: that. I would love that. Um, I don't know if I'll get to Austin anytime soon. But when I do, um, I'm going to track you down and have a socially distanced um, mom lunch <laughs> and It may not be till 2021, but I'm thinking about you and I'm just delighted to reconnect with you. Is there anything I didn't ask that you want to share, Natasha, because I'm sure we could go on forever, but I know you're... I know we could. The one thing I would say, and I think we probably have this in common, is you know,
1: a lot of the work that we're doing and that I hope to nationwide have more collaborative effort around is people experiencing homelessness. Um, a, a little over a year ago, we were talking about, you know, land use reform and convention center expansions. And then, you know, we opened a giant can of worms and we decriminalized homelessness last summer. We basically, mm. you know, no sit, no lie ordinances. Um, we said that those were, you know, some of the last vestiges of, you know, Jim Crow era laws. That's where some of those, you know, um, Camping ordinances came from, you know, it was a way to further criminalize freed slaves. And so um, when we rescinded those ordinances, I mean, when I tell you the whole, there was a whole segment of the population that I didn't even realize was so prolific in my hometown that just really, let's just say they flared up. Um, and I don't think Austin's unique in that way either. So I really do look forward to cities like Seattle, cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco. Um, we certainly don't have the numbers that those cities have, but you know, I, I, I know that the, the problem is not unique to Austin. You know, people need houses and people need wraparound services that really include that long-term continuum of care. And so I, I, I look forward to um, talking more with folks about how we tackle the challenge that is folks experiencing homelessness, how we tackle the challenge of, you know, treating folks with substance use disorder like patients and not like criminals but with, you know, mental health issues need help and homes, not handcuffs. So I, I do look forward to the continuation of that conversation and really some, some action items. I, I would, I would have met my goal if that's one of the things that we were able to really get some movement around before I, I leave this office.
0: It's so holistic and it kind of goes back to just everything, your approach to uh, every challenge that you look at, which is you started out in the conversation by saying every time you tried to tackle something, it led to the next, um, the thread led to the next um, systemic problem that was not you know, not a crime, but a like a symptom of an illness. And so back to the public health crisis, um, it's, it's, yeah, it's a complicated puzzle that you're trying to put together and be, be in, I don't know, just, just bring people along in this thinking that we don't, like you said, decriminalizing homelessness is so important. Um, and, Law enforcement reform needs to be part of that because that's, that's not where our your city resources should be going. They should be going to building affordable housing and Got it. getting people off the street. Wow. It's profound. It's all, I can't even get the words out. I'm just so in, in overwhelmed by all of this, but I adore you. I'm glad to reconnect. I'm sad that we lost track there, file I think the last time I reached out to you, I was in Austin in 2016 for the Field of Vase dinner, and I was tr- trying to get you to come, and I think you had a family vacation or something. I went back and looked at my emails to try to see when the last time we connected, and it was 2016. It was actually when you um, officially closed your business, too, I think.
1: Mm, yes, yep. Well, um, I tell you what, I'm glad we were able to reconnect, and I hope that the next time we get to chat, we get to talk about flowers. Yeah. I- really still just have a burning desire for folks to know more about flowers and where they come from and what the industry looks like and the evolution from us producing our own flowers domestically to them being outsourced and some of the other things that I was able to uncover along the way, like the longest running duty-free arrangement ever between our country and a South American country that produces flowers. It's just, mm. like, there's so much stuff that people just don't know. Yeah. And I think if they did, it would change their relationship with flowers. Mm. I know it would affect the industry and hopefully positively affect our domestic flower production. So hopefully we get to chat about that next time.
0: Let's do it. I uh, thank you so much. And we will um, we'll put all your contact information and uh, not that people can reach out to you to ask you for anything, but just to follow you and support you uh, along this journey. It's been a privilege to talk with you, Natasha. Thank you so much. That privilege was mine. Thank you, Deborah. <laughs> Have a great day. You too. Thank you. for joining my conversation with Natasha Harper Madison, City Council member for Austin's District 1. I was struck by a few of her statements, including, "This gig is not for folks who need instant gratification," and later, "Sacrifice is not synonymous with suffering." I so admire Natasha for her willingness to sow the seeds of heirloom plants today, plants she may never personally see come to fruit or bloom. I feel so moved to have had this conversation with a former colleague who's taken a path of greater personal sacrifice to address the inequities in her community. And I believe there's a ripple effect of Natasha's actions and leadership, not to mention her ambitious vision to improve her community's lives. That ripple effect may inspire you to take action about something you believe is hurting your community. This conversation reminds me that we can all do better. Thank you again, Natasha. Our next sponsor thanks goes to Longfield Gardens, which provides home gardeners with high-quality flower bulbs and perennials. Their online store offers plants for every region and every season, from tulips and daffodils to dahlias, caladiums, and amaryllis. Check out the full catalog at longfield-gardens.com. The Slow Flowers podcast has been downloaded more than 627,000 times by listeners like you. Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. As our movement gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of the American cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. I value your support and invite you to show your thanks with a donation to support my ongoing advocacy, education, and outreach activities. You can find the donate button in the column to the right at deborahprinzing.com. Our final sponsor thanks goes to Rooted Farmers. Rooted Farmers works exclusively with local growers to put the highest quality specialty cut flowers into floral customers' hands. When you partner with Rooted Farmers, you're investing in your community and you can expect a commitment to excellence in return. Learn more at RootedFarmers.com. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of the Slow Flowers Podcast. Learn more about his work at soundbodymovement.com.